And listen, I have to move around. I'll try and be as still as possible, but I need to move around. My name is Lady Carlson, and I organize with Northern and Central Louisiana Interfaith. Interfaith is an affiliation of institutions that cross all the lines that separate us, race, class, uh, religion, socioeconomic status. And what we do is, first of all, bring people together and say, we need to learn to trust each other. So we're going to start by building relationships with each other. And then we're going to figure out with each other how to work together to make the community better. And we really answer the question, am I my brother's keeper? And what does that mean in a political sense if I am my brother's keeper? We are a nonpartisan political organization. We don't back political parties. We don't back political candidates. We don't take money from political parties. We don't take money from political candidates. But we say to them, if you are elected, we want to, your agreement that you will work with us around this agenda that, have come, that has come out of our local communities and from our families. We give everybody the questions. We give the, it's, it's a level playing ground. And once the election is over, you know, when people are running for office, they agree to do anything. But when the election is over, then we go back to them and we say, we are with interfaith. And remember, you said you would do X, Y, and Z. Now, some people have short memories, you know, and they don't remember, but we don't go away. And I'd like to, t let me tell you just a, a sentence or two about myself, and then I'd like to think with you for a few minutes uh, from a book called Hope Within History uh, by a man named Walter Brueggemann, who is a scriptural scholar. Now, I, I'm, a, I'm a Baptist, okay, and so if I get long-winded, you just say to me, it's time to close. <laughs> that's right, that's right. So. Uh, I'm originally from Port Arthur, Texas. I was born in 1951, and so I was born into a segregated community. And I went to colored schools. You know, I used to be colored. I'm not ashamed to say that. I went to colored schools with colored teachers who felt like their vocation was to take this group of children whose parents grandparents, great-grandparents had been slaves or sharecroppers, and to teach us about really writing history and making the world better for Port Arthur and African, well, we weren't African-American then, Port Arthur and blacks and, and, and for this country, really. And so I was taught that one of us one day could be president. But you've got to understand the irony of that. Our parents couldn't vote. But we believed, we believed that one day one of us could be, would be president and that we would change America and we would be sitting at the table in the, in the seats of power. And so that really set up for me really what I do today as an organizer. Walter Brueggemann in his book, Hope Within History, says that there are two people writing history. One 
the rich and the powerful, and the other is God's people. And Brueggemann says that when God's people write history, that they write history with the notion of justice. But not justice in the sense of an eye for an eye. Justice in the sense of how we treat the least of those among us. Am I my brother's keeper? And he uses the Exodus story to talk about what he calls steps to faith development. Now, you know the Exodus story. Israel is in captivity uh, to Egypt. Pharaoh's working them, and, and they're, they're, li- they're slaves. And so they're doing all this work to build all these magnificent things for Pharaoh, and they're not being paid for it. So Brueggemann says that the first step for faith development and for God to move in history is what he calls a critique of current ideology. You have to think that something is wrong, that everything isn't right. It is not. When I grew up in the Baptist church, we used to sing this song, It is well with my soul. Well, Brueggemann says that if God's going to move in history, then it can't be well with your soul, you know. you got to be looking and saying something is wrong. And so for Israel, what was wrong was they were slaves. Then Brueggemann says there has to be what he calls a public processing of pain. You have to begin to cry out. And Israel begins to cry out to God. And, you know, God says to them, I've been waiting 400 years. Where have you guys been? I want to do something. So there has to be a public processing of pain. Then Brueggemann says there has to be what he calls a release of new social imagination. It's not enough to cry out. It's not enough to complain, but then you have to have something to replace the system that you say is unjust and unfair. And for Israel, that was Sinai. For us as interfaith, we do these series of meetings, small group meetings that we call house meetings. They're not done in the house. We should call them something else. We should call them small group meetings. But they're they're small group meetings of about 10 to 15 people where we come together and we say, what will make this community better, but what are you willing to do about it? And so you can't just murmur and complain, but you have to be willing then to do something about it. In house meetings, and and let me back up and, and say this to you, Northern and Central Louisiana Interfaith is affiliated with the Industrial Areas Foundation, the IEF. The IEF is over 50 years old. Uh, we are nationwide. Their organization, we have a sister organization in uh, New Orleans called the Jeremiah Group. And then Northern and Central Louisiana Interfaith is Alexandria, Shreveport, and Monroe. In Shreveport, we started to do these series of house meetings, and we say, what will make this community better? And people said, both in the, the African-American and in the white community, 
we need extended hour bus service. Our families, the African-American families said our, our families have jobs and they can't get to them if they don't have a car on the second and the third shift. Employers said we can't keep good people because we can't get them to, they don't have transportation for the second and the third shift. So a group of people got together in interfaith, and they did, we do these meetings. They called uh, research actions where we went out and we started learning about public transportation for Shreveport and Bossier County, and uh, uh, as well. And what we found, we were able to get money from uh, Senator, uh, Representative McCrary, $800,000, if the city would match it. Great idea, right? Isn't that a great idea? The city didn't want to do it. <laughs> you know, if it, how will we pay for this? And are we sure? And, but it was through the efforts of people like uh, Bobby Matei, who's uh, a Catholic from St. Elizabeth, uh, Ann Seton, Ruth Bryan, an African-American woman from Evergreen Baptist Church, just a group of people working and over about a six-month period were able to convince the city that not only was this a good thing to do, but that in the end, the city would make money off <laughs> The bus service would last. And I don't know if you've uh, seen any of the reports, but the ridership has been phenomenal. And it, uh, Shreveport is getting an award from the Louisiana Municipal Association because of its creativeness and innovation and extended bus hour service. <laughs> That's right. You just missed a great place to say amen. <laughs> but remember, it was, it was interfaith writing history and changing the course of the way the city was going. Does that make sense at all? Now, Brueggemann says that there are some hindrances to faith development, and there are some things that stop God from, fancy that. We can hinder God from moving, he says. And one of the things he says that is a hindrance to faith development is silence. Now, if I get too loud on this story, let me know, and I'll tone, I'll tone it down. Remember, though, I'm from Port Arthur, and we stood on the porch, and we yelled across <laughs> to each other, and so I can be very boisterous. Silence, Brueggemann says, is a hindrance to faith development. And he uses the story of blind Bartimaeus. You know that story? Bartimaeus is, and this is in, in the Christian scriptures, Bartimaeus is a beggar, and he's sitting on the side of the road, and he hears this tumult and this noise in the back of him, and he, and he says to people, what's going on? And they say to him, Bartimaeus, haven't you heard? It's Jesus of Nazareth. He's coming to our town today. And Bartimaeus is shocked, and he can't, Jesus is coming. And he begins to, to scream out because he's heard of this Jesus of Nazareth, this guy that opens blind eyes and, and you know, heals people. And so he's, he begins to think, my goodness, could it be and that I could get healed today? And so he begins to uh, shout out, Jesus, 
thou son of David, have mercy on me. And people say to him, Bartimaeus, be quiet. Be quiet, Bartimaeus, because we don't want Jesus to know that people can't get to work at night because they don't have a car. Be quiet, Bartimaeus. We don't want Jesus to know that there are poor people in our city. Oh, my God. Be quiet, Bartimaeus. When I was in Houston and and the Republican convention had come several years ago and the city was doing this big dress-up program, they are moving the homeless people away. Because we don't want people to know that there are homeless in Houston. Oh, my God, the homeless. Be quiet, Bartimaeus. We don't want people to, we don't want Jesus to know how we treat the least of those among us. Now, Bartimaeus, being the smart guy he was, and, you know, they didn't have microphones back then. And just picture this, there's this crowd of people following Jesus. Kind of like the reporters and all the people following the candidates now, you know. But Bartimaeus says, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And the louder he yelled, the more they said, be quiet. And he got loud. Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And he was so loud that Jesus heard him over all the crowd. And he came to him and he said, now Bartimaeus, what would you have me do? And he said, Lord, that I might receive my sight. And he said, Bartimaeus, it's been granted unto you. Silence is an enemy of hope. You just missed a great place to say amen. (laughs) Then the other enemy is contentment. And again, he uses the the Christian scriptures and and the rich young ruler. You know the guy in Luke that says, boy, I've done good. I've got a, a Beamer in my garage. I've got a Mercedes. I'm going to get me a Lamborghini. Boy, I have done well by myself. And I'm gonna eat, I'm gonna invite all my buddies over. We're gonna do a party like Kozlowski, uh, you know the guy from Worldcom? Well, I'm gonna throw a party like that. And then I'm gonna go to sleep tonight. And in the morning I'm gonna get up and I'm gonna tear my barns down. And I'm gonna start all over again. And the scriptures say that, that God says to the rich young ruler, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Am I my brother's keeper? To whom much is given, much is required. And I I tell the story that, you know, my kids are doing pretty good. I have three children. They're all uh, doing relatively well. I have two sons. My sons are not in prison. They're not dead. They're not on drugs. But I can't be happy, and I can't sleep, because somebody else's son, and I always tell uh, these kids when I see them, you're my child. And they're like, Lady, I don't know. You know, you are my child, because I can't be content. One of my heroes is Harriet Tubman, because she had to go, (laughs) yours too, huh? (laughs) She couldn't be content in freedom 
as long as others, African Americans, were enslaved. Contentment is an enemy of hope. Then the other enemy of hope, he says, is technology. You know the guys that, and I hope nobody is a, a city planner. Anybody a city planner? You know the guys that sit in the office and they dream up these schemes about all these things that, that we should be doing. You know, it's a tyranny of experts. Uh, when I grew up on the west side of Port Arthur, it was a, a very nice neighborhood. It was a middle-class neighborhood with people that owned their own homes. And the, the federal government, through urban renewal, decided that that wasn't a nice neighborhood. And so they send these people in that tell the families, you have to move. We're going to buy your property. Y'all, no, evidently, nobody's experienced urban renewal. We're going to buy your property. We're going to tear these houses down. That's where the new, you know, those McMansions, that's where they came from. The federal government started it. <laughs> We're going to tear these houses down. We're going to build new houses, and we are going to uh, sell them to other people, eminent domain. And so they took a perfectly uh, good neighborhood and, and just forced people to resettle technology and the tyranny of experts. They sit in an office somewhere and they plan what's best for us, and then we have to live by it. You know, when I was a, a little girl, we had uh, washers that, that they, you had to wring the clothes and, you know, you had to hang them on the line. And, and, and we didn't have air conditioning until I was about 10 years old, and so everybody sat outside. We knew our neighbors. They knew us. And, and you know, we didn't have television, and so we had to do all these things. Well, let me tell you, I'm, I'm 56 years old. I like the air conditioning. It does wonders, you know. And TV, if you filter through it, you know, it's not so bad. <laughs> you get to see the BBC on TV. <laughs> but technology has changed our neighborhoods and changed the way we live. Technology can be an enemy of hope. Now, are all planners bad? No. There are some very good people that plan some very good things in our communities that work. But I think a part of what we're saying is that you need, though, this group of people that come together. So it can't just be a guy in an office somewhere, but it has to be in relationship with people that are being impacted by the decisions that are being made. We need planners, but we need people that say, I need to hear from you. What do you think will make this neighborhood work? Now, the final thing, there's a woman named Hannah Arendt. And Arendt was uh, a Jewish philosopher who spent her life, she escaped Nazi Germany, and she spent her life trying to figure out what went wrong, what happened in Germany. And Arendt says two things. One was that the Germans lost their capacity for judgment because they were only with people like them that you need to be around people that are very different from you 
because they challenge you. And the second thing Arendt said is this. I'll never grow to my fullest potential unless I'm in relationship with you. A white woman and me an African-American woman. Are you a white man and me an African-American woman? That I will never become or live to my fullest potential until I'm with you and you're with me. And so interfaith really is about how do we really develop ourselves to our fullest potential by being with people that challenge us, that disagree with us, that say to us, this is what it's like for me, but my story is connected for, with you, and how do we put our stories together to create this just environment, this level playing field where our families can grow and prosper. We have done over the last uh, several years, won victories in, in not only Alexandria, Shreveport, and Monroe. We worked with uh, our organization in, in New Orleans, the Jeremiah Group. And what we're really working to do again is answer that question, am I my brother's keeper, not by doing for my brother, but standing in solidarity as we figure out with each other how to make our communities better. Thank you.